course, we can't because we, there's another, another mask. Keep so. rolling. Yeah. Hold the other one in. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. I uh, just wanted to uh, encourage you to uh, settle in, and we're going to begin with this, our second talk in this phase of the Faith and Reason lecture series. Some of you were here last night, uh, some of you were not, so just to introduce him again to new faces. Uh, it's our pleasure to have with us uh, Byzantine Catholic priest, uh, patristic scholar and liturgist, Father David Anderson. Uh, he comes to us from Byzantine Parish in Ukiah, California. Um, he has been a parish priest there for 37 years. Not um, there the whole time. Oh, not there the whole time. And only 32 years. Well, 32, okay. so uh, priest for 37. Uh, 30, priest for 32. And, and pre, oh, priest for 32. Um, educated uh, in the uh, in Orthodoxy. Uh, father uh, came up as an uh, Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox, uh, and was educated at Wadham. Wadham's Hall and then St. Vladimir's. And then St. Vladimir's Orthodox Seminary, which uh, if you know things about theological circles, is it? is an excellent place to receive an Orthodox theological education. Uh, studied in particular under uh, the renowned theologian Alexander Schmemann. Uh, if you want more on that, you can read Philip Gilbert's thesis, wherever it is. Um, it was actually rather enjoyable for me to spend some time reading some more Schmemann. I found it uh, rather beautiful. And uh, has a particular interest in both early church fathers, patristics, uh, and the study of the liturgy. And this is his second uh, talk this evening. It will be followed by another tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock, uh, which will be a walkthrough of the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom's, uh, which is the liturgy that will be celebrated Saturday at 9 a.m. So it's a great opportunity for us to read the folk ones of the church, as John Paul II had put it, and to learn more about the theology and spirituality uh, of the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church. So welcome once again, Father Anderson. Thank you. As I did yesterday, let's all stand and pray. And I'll conclude the prayers tonight with the hymn that we sing in the Byzantine Rite for the feast of the meeting, or as you call it in the West, the presentation of the Lord in the temple, which we are celebrating not just for one day, but several days all through this week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present and filling all things, the treasury of all blessings and giver of life, come dwell within us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord. We adore you, O Christ, and we bless you. Hail, O Virgin, Theotokos, full of grace, from you rose the Son of Righteousness, Christ our God. He has enlightened those in darkness. Rejoice, O righteous elder. You received in your arms the Redeemer of our souls, who grants us the resurrection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> A number of, of people, upon being uh, introduced uh, to me and I to them, uh, in these uh, couple days that I've been here, have uh, commented, oh, so you, you were once an Orthodox priest. And I have replied, 
well, I hope I still am an Orthodox priest. <laughs> uh, using, using that word in its fullest sense of that which is true, the true teaching and the true glory, the true doxa, as, the, as we in the East like to say, uh, I would, I generally add to that response, I am an Orthodox priest in communion with Rome. Uh, that is perhaps the best way simply to define the Eastern Catholic Churches. Those portions of the Eastern Orthodox Churches that have uh, embraced either a long time ago or more recently uh, communion or returned to that communion with the Church of Rome. This evening's talk is going to be quite different from yesterday's. Yesterday I tried to, in a very short time, pack a lot of introductory exposure so that uh, those who heard the talk might have a mental image of what the Eastern churches are. Uh, this evening I'm going to do the opposite. We're going to have a very specific talk uh, about those words that are so central to us all, to Christians from the beginning, from the apostles until the end of the world, those words which are called the words of institution, the words of Jesus at the supper in which he gave us himself. Before I begin, however, uh, I do have a couple slightly amusing anecdotes. The reason why I want to give such a specific talk of that nature, of the nature that it's going to be this evening, is that it's very easy, especially when uh, having a visit uh, at a place here like Christendom College, uh, of this nature of a Eastern Catholic priest spending several days giving several talks celebrating the liturgy. It's not the first time it's happened here, but it's been a long time since the Byzantine liturgy has been celebrated here. It's very easy both for you and for me to become all bound up in details because, in a sense, details are very fascinating. I think it was Einstein who initially said, God is in the details. Now we say the devil is in the details. But Einstein said God is in the details because the details are reflectors or mirrors that, that show us so many fascinating things. Details, of course, are meant to reflect and to illustrate that which is beyond them. Details are never an end in themselves. A lot of details have had to be faced in even planning a simple a visit as this. For example, uh, last night, uh, Phil Gilbert and Stephen Tracy stayed up till the middle of the night uh, doing some construction to make a temporary iconostasis, as it is called, an icon screen in a traditional Byzantine church, the nave of the church and the sanctuary, the altar area, uh, have between them this screen of, of icons, 
stand with icons, iconostasis, that's literally what it means. It's essentially uh, an altar rail that's, that's grown in height. And although it is not, would not have been essential for us to have that in order to celebrate the Byzantine liturgy, the fact that we did find icons to temporarily put in the college chapel and now we have the stands to put, it, to put them on will make that celebration of the liturgy uh, more externally authentic. Then the amusing part of this is um, I had to make a phone call today uh, back home to California because there had been some confusion. What happened was uh, in order to have the celebration of the Divine Liturgy on Saturday, I had to bring with myself a number of things that we will need. There isn't an Eastern Church right down the street from, from the college here. All of them are at least a, a certain distance away. So I had to bring things from our church. And two of the items that I had to bring that are necessary, not, uh, not in any way uh, uh, could be dispensed with, is the liturgical spoon with which we distribute communion. And I'll say more about these things tomorrow. And the liturgical spear with which the priest divides what we call in the Byzantine tradition the lamb. The, uh, uh, the Byzantine tradition uses that word in exactly the same way as the Latin tradition uses the word host. The lamb, the body of Christ before communion, is divided by the priest into the necessary number of particles for the communion of the faithful. And this is done with a liturgical knife that's in the form of a spear. So I brought the spear and the spoon as well as a hand cross to give blessings with from my church. And I don't have seconds of those items with the exception of the spoon, so I called the monastery of Mount Tabor from which one of the priests is coming this Sunday morning when I will be still away uh, to celebrate the liturgy for my parish. Uh, I called the morning that I, that I left to come here and I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the uh, voicemail, I'm taking the church's spoon, spear, and blessing cross with me, so you're going to have to bring those things uh, from the monastery when you come to celebrate on Sunday morning. But apparently the message got c confused because later on that morning, there arrived at the door of the rectory a box with a spear, spoon, and blessing cross in it, and someone from the monastery thought that I was saying, I need those things immediately to take with me. Uh, and then the, the lady who lives near the church, who's taking care of things while I'm gone, saw the box and said, oh, Father David forgot to take his spoon, spear, and blessing cross. And she packed them up and sent them out here and they arrived today. So now we have two spoons, two spears, and two blessing crosses, and my church has none at all. <laughs> so I had to call the monastery and said, well, you're going to have to scrape up yet a third spoon, spear, and blessing cross when you go to St. Peter's on Sunday morning. And this time, I, I said to the, I, my message was, Father Theodore, this time I suggest you bring them yourself the, the, when you come, because otherwise they might get sent off too. <laughs> 
So lots of details. It's easy to get uh, so focused on the details. It's, we could spend uh, the whole evening tonight talking about details such as, well, why, why in the Byzantine tradition do we have this icon screen in the church? Uh, why does the West in general not have it? Although in certain places of the West it is found. For example, in England, the so-called rude screen. Um, tomorrow evening, I understand, and I, I plan to be in attendance at it, there is the special First Friday Holy Hour that you will have. And so the question might be asked, uh, do the Eastern churches have these sorts of Eucharistic devotions outside of Mass that developed in the West, holy hours and processions and, and such? And the answer is no, those things never developed in the East. Uh, and then, of course, now giving that example, even though this is not an evening for details, why not? Well, the answer why not is that the East never had a Eucharistic crisis. The East never had people denying the reality of the Eucharistic presence. These things developed in the West as a firm statement in the West of the reality of the Eucharistic presence from the time of Albigensianism onward and then, of course, during the Reformation. The East, on the other hand, did have an iconoclastic crisis. So uh, while the West did not have to, at least before the Reformation, deal with people destroying the images in the churches and even having to die for in protection of those images. Uh, the East, on the other hand, did pass through nearly two centuries of that. So a lot of the reasons why details are different is because of historical circumstances, you see. Another question that will no doubt uh, come up tomorrow evening when we speak of some of the unique features of the Byzantine liturgy. And again, uh, just for the sake of clarity, remember that the Byzantine liturgy is only one of many Eastern liturgies, just as, uh, as you saw yesterday, the, any particular uh, Eastern Catholic church is one of 25. There are many of them. So uh, the, one of the questions that will inevitably come up, just like it was inevitable yesterday that the filioque question would come up, <laughs> Maybe we can say more about it before all this ends. Uh, the question of, of leavened and unleavened bread. You know, the Byzantine church uh, uses leavened bread. The Latin rite from the, between the 8th and 10th century onward has used unleavened bread. It did not use it primitively. But the question will come up, why is that? And then we will see the historical circumstances behind it. But this evening, I want to focus on this one heart of the matter, uh, central expression of our very identity as disciples of Jesus Christ, found in the Lord's self-giving his Passover, and of course it is the actualization of his Passover that all of us, apostolic and Catholic Christians, immerse ourselves in and are nourished by until the end of our days. And as we will see, we will 
narrow our focus on those words of the Lord to one little two-letter word and see what there is there uh, for us to widen, deepen, broaden our not only understanding of, but knowledge of. And I'm sure Christendom College does a very good job of distinguishing uh, in the traditional way between understanding and knowledge. They are two necessary but distinct things. Understanding uh, is related to having the correct information about things. Knowledge, on the other hand, is experiential. experiential. The clearest way that for us to understand that is the biblical way. What is the union of Adam and Eve? How is that described in Scripture? Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she bore a son. It is a union, a relational union. One of the troubles of uh, the contemporary period, it seems to me, is that people have confused information and knowledge. They think that because we have bigger, better, and more sophisticated banks of knowledge that are immediately accessible to us, or or, or rather, uh, uh, banks of information, of that through that information that makes us have correspondingly great increases of knowledge. And it's not so. Not so. There's no guarantee that more informative understanding is, is going to give birth to an increase in knowledge unless that information gives birth to a truly relational union between uh, what is known and, and the one who knows. So, I want to begin by reading from the original text of the New Testament. I'll, I won't read lengthy passages, but uh, perhaps most of you know that the account of the institution of the Eucharist in the New Testament is found in four places the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does not have it for reasons of his own. And then in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, those are the four accounts of the institution. And I have the Greek text here, and without comment, I will read uh, translating not following any uh, already existing English translation, not that there aren't some very good ones, but I want to, for the sake of this talk, uh, translate in a painstakingly literal way, which uh, it's difficult for translations always to be painstakingly literal. The, the trial of the translator, and I served as a translator of lit- uh, liturgical and patristic texts for a long time, and certainly wanted to do it in a traditional and faithful way. But even when one is pledged to do that, one immediately discovers that one cannot be literally literal all the time 
because if one is, it's almost uh, uh, ununderstandable in the language in which one is translating. So, beginning in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed, broke, and gave to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this all, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness, or one could say remission, of sins. In this account, I would want to emphasize one word, which is the word that is that literally means is being poured out. Echinomenon. By the way, for those of you who either teach or learn Greek here, I use the ecclesiastical Greek pronunciation, which is different from the classical one. Okay. Like the ecclesiastical pronunciation of Latin is different from the classical one. This word, echinomenon, is a participle. It is in the present tense and specifically in the present progressive. Is being, is being poured out, though you won't find, I don't think, a, uh, an English translation that uh, expresses the progressive in that sense. Now let us turn to St. Mark. And Mark's account is very similar to Matthew's, but I will read it because there are a few distinct features. Mark 14, 22. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed, broke, and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Almost verbatim, exactly the same as Matthew. And taking the cup, he, he gave thanks and gave to them saying, oh, and they all drank, they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, once again, which is being poured out for many. Present progressive. Now let us turn to St. Luke chapter 22, and this is what we have. Chapter 22, verse 19. And taking bread, by the way, I should say uh, that the word 
for bread that is used in all the accounts is the word artos. That's the word in Greek for regular bread. There is another word for the unleavened bread of the Passover, azima. That is not the word that is used in the accounts of the Last Supper. And taking bread, he gave thanks and broke and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is being given for you. Didomeno. So, this is the first account in which the words, This is my body, are appended. This is my body, which is being, again, present progressive, being given for you. Do this as my memorial. Now, we are all, perhaps, more familiar with the translation, do this in remembrance of me, but there is no genitive there. Do this as my memorial. And likewise, the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood being poured out for you. Again, echinomenon. All three accounts in regard to the chalice have this present progressive participle, being poured out for you. Then when we look at the fourth account, in 1 Corinthians 11. And this is uh, an important account because uh, there would be agreement among scripture scholars that uh, Paul, writing to the Corinthians in the early 50s, uh, this is, although it's not in, in one of the Gospels on the one hand, yet on the other hand, it's the earliest one. And St. Paul uh, begins it very solemnly, saying, I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. Uh, literally, the same word is used for receive and hand on, from paradosis. Uh, so if we were to be very painstakingly literal, we would say, I tradition to you what was traditioned to me. That the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. For you. No uh, participle there at all. This is my body for you. In the same way also, the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And there, uh, unlike the accounts in the Gospels, the, the, the being poured out for you is not mentioned, but rather, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. And then again, the same expression, as my memorial, as my memorial. Uh, Father, 
Louis Bouillet, the great liturgical scholar, uh, gave great uh, emphasis to this necessity of understanding that translating this as my memorial from the Aramaic zikaron into the Greek anamnesis, of course then into the Latin memoria, all of these words convey that just as when the Passover is instituted for Israel, they are instructed, the people of Israel are instructed by God through Moses that they will do this as an everlasting memorial, an everlasting zikaron. And now it's the same sort of expression in, in Greek that is used in my memorial, my, my remembrance, my zikaron, the new and eternal covenant. Now, you may, if you are, if you are paying attention, and if you are perceptive, you may have noticed uh, a number of things. But firstly, the tense of the verbal forms, when there are such forms, and there aren't always. But the tense of the verbal forms is always in the present. Never in the future. Never in the future. But those of you who are liturgically savvy will realize that in the tradition that developed in the West, the verbal form is transposed from the present to the future. Uh, it's in uh, the Latin. Now, in, in the traditional Latin text of the Mass, this is my body, hoc est enim corpus meum, is used in the liturgy without anything being added to it. Now, in the Novus Ordo, the uh, scriptural phrase is added to that, but the traditional uh, use in the, in the Roman liturgy is simply the words, this is my body. But in the, the words for the chalice, uh, we have this, and those of you who know the Latin Mass uh, will we'll understand that the same words carry over from the traditional form into the Novus Ordo. Hic est anim calix sanguinis mei, novi et eternum testamenti, qui provobis et promultis effundetur. D-E-T-U-R, effundetur. And this is the future tense. Future tense. If it were the present tense, it would need to be what, Latinus? Afunditur. <laughs> Afunditur. Okay. So, what does this tell us? This tells us that liturgically, liturgically, the church has never been bound and has never considered herself bound to simply use a direct quotation of one of the four scriptural accounts of institution, and never has. And indeed, in the Roman tradition, to which uh, you are all used, or, or nearly all of you are all used, you might recognize that certain other features are added as well. In the, uh, in the traditional Roman form, which is carried over into the first Eucharistic prayer, we hear of of the Lord lifting his eyes to heaven. There is no description in the scriptural accounts 
uh, 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 of that. But, those of you who know your New Testament well, on what occasion is the Lord described as lifting his eyes to heaven? Yes? That's right. That's right. In the multiplication of the loaves, which is a foreshadowing of the Eucharist, there, Jesus is described as elevating his eyes to heaven before blessing and multiplying the loaves. In the liturgical formula in the Roman tradition, that has been added to the institution. In the Eastern traditions, not only the uh, Byzantine, but all the others, the present tense of the verb has been retained in all cases. When you come to the, those of you who do come, to the celebration of the Divine Liturgy on Saturday, and we have reached the words of institution in the anaphora, the, name, the, the Greek term for the Eucharistic prayer, you will hear the priest chant, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now, there you have a word that is not used in any of the four accounts, given in one of them, and then in St. Paul's, this is my body for you. But here we have another example of something added by the tradition of the church in its Greek expression. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out or shed for you. And it is that is that I would like to focus on in this talk. What are we to learn from it? It's interesting, by the way, you might, you might ask, how did, the, how did the future tense enter into the formulary of the Roman liturgy? Now, I have done a good deal of, of digging and delving, trying to find an answer to this question. And I, to this day, uh, I don't know anyone who claims really to have it. It is lost in the earliest layer of the development of the liturgy in the Roman church. All we know is that Hippolytus, writing in the uh, 3rd century, and he's writing in Greek, he's, he's a Roman, but he's writing in Greek, he when describing the liturgical prayers of the Roman rite at that time, uh, sometimes uses the present, sometimes uses the future. And then when we come to the translation of the Bible into, from Greek into the Latin Vulgate, of course it had, it, it had uh, been translated previously, the old Latin version, but by the translation by Jerome, that is where we find in St. Jerome's Vulgate, he consistently introduces the future in his translation of the Greek text, even though the Greek text very clearly has it in the present. And as he is not here to answer why he did that, and his manuscripts do not give us the answer, we simply must let it be as it is. However, of course, in the uh, retranslation of the Latin uh, Vulgate, the Nova Vulgata. What's happened there? Well, surprisingly, there the 
uh, translation has been returned to the present. So there's been a good deal of bouncing around in, in Latin. But in Greek, in this case, and therefore in the Eastern churches, the institution account is always in the present. Now, I am not, by uh, making you aware of this, uh, suggesting that there is anything uh, to be, um, su there's anything suspect in any of these developments. They all come from the earliest days of the church. But I do wish to focus on what the original text of the New Testament, and we, we do have to bear in mind, of course, the New Testament is written in Greek, and in that sense, Greek is, if there is such a thing as the mother language of Christianity, it, it's Greek. <laughs> what can I tell you? <laughs> now, what are we being shown in that is? And, and from here, we move to the second part of this talk. The first part was the uh, informative section for understanding. The second part of it is hopefully for knowledge, for an interiorizing, for a digesting of all of that. If we look to one particular group of the fathers of the church, one that is neither Greek nor Latin, we find some rather astonishing expressions of what that present tense means for us. And I am referring to the Syriac fathers. Syriac fathers, of course, wrote in Syriac or Aramaic. Two languages are virtually identical. Aramaic is the spoken language of Palestine, certainly spoken by the Lord and the apostles, who probably also had a pretty decent facility with Greek as well, because most people did at that time. If you consider that some of the apostles had Greek names, Andrew and Philip, because they came from the north in Galilee, where, where Greek was spoken very widely. Uh, if we look to the Syriac fathers, though, we find the reason why they are so valuable is precisely because they have that Semitic sense, that Hebrew sense, therefore that scriptural sense of things, that enables us, us of both the Greek and Latin traditions, to perhaps understand and know more clearly and deeply what is being said and what is being done for us by our Lord. Here's some examples. The uh, Syriac fathers are known for their uh, graphic use of images and in their words. This is from Aphrates, and it's from his writing on the Pascha, on the Passover. And this is what he says. Our Lord rose from where he had performed the Pascha and given his body to be eaten and his blood to be drunk and went with his disciples to the place where he was arrested. 
Now one whose body is eaten and whose blood is drunk is counted among the dead. With his own hands our Lord gave his body to be eaten, and before being crucified he gave his blood to be drunk. Now, hold that in your minds and hearts, and then I will turn to another even more vibrant. Uh, it's so vibrant that often when people hear this for the first time, they find it somewhat shocking. This is from Kirolonas. Kirolonas is the nephew of the great St. Ephraim the Syrian. St. Ephraim the Syrian is the father of Christian hymnography. From St. Ephraim the Syrian, Romanus in the Greek church and St. Ambrose in the West were inspired to begin writing Christian hymns. So we all have become singers of hymns, it can be said, through the ministry of St. Ephraim the Syrian. Before the 4th century, there was practically no hymn singing. There was psalm singing, but not hymn singing. The only specifically Christian hymns by that time that we can identify would be what, what would be called now in the West the Gloria, at least in an early form, and uh, a Vesper hymn of the East, Joyful Light. Those are the first specifically Christian hymns to be mentioned. So, Kirolonas, the nephew of St. Ephraim. The true Paschal Lamb speaks joyfully to those who will eat him. And the firstborn announced the Passover in the dining room to his disciples. Our Savior invited himself to his immolation and blood shedding. His life-giving bread was nutritious and well-prepared. And his sheaf of grain came home full. The matter of his body was permeated with the yeast of his divinity. His mercy welled up and his love overflowed so that he might become food for his own. He had prepared a new banquet and now he invited his companions to it and called them to come. He prepared a feast for his bride to allay her hunger. Our Lord slew his own body. And only then did mortals slay it. He pressed it out into the cup of salvation. And only then did they press it out upon the cross. As priest, he offered himself ahead of time. Ahead of time. So, the Syrian fathers are saying that the Lord, and this is to be understood mystically in the spirit, it's not to be uh, analyzed and stretched to death, but it's to be understood with the heart, our Lord went through his passion already dead, they say. This, now, you see, we are very logical and we say, well, what? Does that mean that you are claiming that our Lord does not die on the cross? Of course, certainly not. That's, what's, that, that's not what it's saying. But it is saying 
that what makes the Lord's death on the cross what it is has already been accomplished by his act at the supper, by his self-immolation. And that is why there is an importance to that scriptural is. There is a great importance to the present tense. The present tense is in the very name of God. I am who I am. In icons of the Lord Jesus in the Byzantine tradition, there is always in the halo around his head the Greek letters that say, Ho-on, he who is, is. We, as creatures, have limitations in the past and the future that have been turned into prisons by our sinful and our sinful state and our liability to death. We have, we have become prisoners of the past and the future. Try to lay hold of the present. I am speaking. You are presumably listening to my words, but my words, as soon as they are said, are in the past, and the next ones to come are in the future. Where is the moment of the present in that? The precise present well, it's difficult to get your fingers on it and hold it down because the present is the dimension of God. The present is eternity. And to get in there, one can get in there. God lets us in there. In offering himself to us, always in the present, he, the eternally present Son of the Father, is giving access to us creatures into the very nature of God. That is how we become partakers of the divine nature, by partaking of him. In addition to this, the death of Jesus our Lord is unique and salvific for us because it is voluntary. This is emphasized in the Byzantine liturgy as follows. Before the words of institution in the Eucharistic prayer, the priest says, on the night in which he was given over, on the night in which he was given over, or rather, says the text, or rather gave himself up for the life of the world. So it is a deliberate uh, correction that our Lord in being handed over for the life of the world is handed over because he hands himself over. Does not the gospel tell us that? over and over again. No one takes away my life from me. I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. In Nazareth, they were about to throw him over the cliff. He passed through the midst because his hour had not yet come. In the temple, they were going to stone him, not, not once, but more than once, because why? He had said before Abraham was, I was... Before Abraham was, I am. Back to the present tense. 
and they took up stones to throw at him, but he passed through their midst and went his way because his hour had not yet come. He is the, hour, he is the announcer of the hour. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. At the supper in John's Gospel, our Lord says, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now. It doesn't say tomorrow, the day of his crucifixion, or the third day from that, the day of his resurrection, although it's, that can be said so, but it is in the now of the eternal present of God. So it is because the Lord as a divine person freely and voluntarily gives himself over to death and he does it before any of the events of the passion have touched him. Blessed John Henry Newman, whom I greatly love and have loved since I was in my early teens when on a Holy Thursday night, uh, and this was the days, as I mentioned to you yesterday, in my childhood where my family all went to the Latin church because that's what there was. And there at a holy hour on Holy Thursday night, the priest read aloud one of John Henry Newman's sermons on the mental sufferings of Christ in his passion. I never forgot it. I've never forgotten it to this day. It changed my life. Never the same after it. There are those moments when we're never the same. Something that we hear for the first time enters into us and transforms us. I, I was, by the way, one of two Eastern Catholic priests that can celebrate it with His Holiness Pope Benedict at John Henry Newman's beatification in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, Alabama, Birmingham. <laughs> he says in that sermon on the mental sufferings, whence comes, he's speaking of the bloody sweat of our Lord in Gethsemane, whence comes this bloodletting of the Lamb? No scourge, no thorn. No nail, no spear has touched him. But he is bleeding from within. From within. There, John Henry Newman in the 19th century is saying the same thing that Hierolonus and Aphratus said in the fourth. Our Savior immolated himself. It is not what Christ suffered that makes his passion and death unique. Both before and after our Lord, people had been crucified by the thousands in Palestine and in other places as well. Some of them lingered for days on their crosses, for days. In the Roman revolt, Josephus tells us that so many were crucified that they ran out of wood for crosses. So if you want horrible deaths, simply physical degrees of horror, you can find much 
that on the level simply of physical horror, physical pain, that surpassed that of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not what was suffered, it's who is suffering it. Who is suffering it? And how he can only suffer it unless he allows himself to suffer it. It's all in his will, the voluntary faculty, the faculty of choice. By his free choice, and he is distinct from us because our wills are fallen, and certainly it is not in our will whether or not we will die. We will all die. Uh, we all venerate such a contemporary saint as Maximilian Kolbe. There is a degree of voluntariness in his willingness to, to substitute for the man who had the wife and children. But even in as noble an act as that, he is only anticipating the inevitable. And he says that. I'm an old man, I'm sick, not far away from death anyway. So death is inevitable for us. It is not inevitable for the Lord Jesus. He will only die when he, in something that is always going to be beyond us, because we are not and never will we be divine persons. We are, we are creaturely persons destined to be partakers of the divine nature. But in his divine personhood, he, in an act of ultimate and extreme pouring out, opens himself to death. That is how death loses its power over us. Saint Athanasius, this is this exercise in respiratory therapy, includes a number of references to the Eastern Fathers. St. Athanasius, the great father of the early 4th century from Alexandria, says in his treatise on the Incarnation, it's one of the best things for someone who's just becoming acquainted with the Church Fathers to read. He wrote it when he was 19 years old. So you can, I never cease to be amazed at that, St. Athanasius wrote on the Incarnation, 19 years old. And he says there, I'm, I'm summarizing it here, that God could have gratuitously forgiven all the sins of the world without the Incarnation. But had he done so, he would have only dealt with the symptom and not with the disease. Sin is the symptom, the disease is death. In order for the obstacle to be removed between the creator and the creature, that which has made it impossible for human beings to attain to union with God, their unnatural mortality must be reversed. And it can only be reversed by a voluntary partaking of death by a divine person. Father Raniero Cantalamesa a name you may have heard. He has been the preacher to the papal household now through three popes at least, St. John Paul and then uh, Pope Benedict and now Pope Francis. And he's still going strong. He, he, uh, I've heard him say that when, when he's asked 
uh, how uh, did you get this position of preacher to the, fa- the papal household? Uh, and Father Cantalamesa, who prior to that was a, a wonderful patristic scholar at the University of Milan, uh, and then had an experience in his middle age in which he was convinced that God was calling him to give up his academic life and to, like uh, the, Fr- the early Franciscans, because he's a Capuchin, simply to go uh, preaching the gospel. And he said, well, I wound up as preacher to the papal household so they could keep me out of mischief there. <laughs> he writes this in his little book, uh, The Eucharist, Our Sanctification. What did Jesus mean to give us at the Last Supper when he said, this is my body? In the Bible, the word body doesn't indicate a component or part of a human being which united to the other components, the soul and the spirit, forms the complete person. doesn't mean that. This way of reasoning is influenced by Greek culture, which in fact divided man in three parts, body, soul, and spirit. In biblical terminology, and therefore in that used by Jesus and Paul, body indicates the whole human being insofar as it lives its life in a body, in a corporeal and mortal condition. In his gospel, John uses the word flesh instead of body. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The word body indicates, therefore, the whole of life. In instituting the Eucharist, Jesus left us the gift of his whole life. From the first moment of the incarnation to the very end, including all that had made up his life. Then Jesus also said, this is my blood. What else does he give us with his blood if he has already given us all his life by giving us his body? He adds death. Having given us his life, he now gives us its most precious part, his death. In the Bible, the term blood doesn't indicate a part of the body and therefore a part of a part of a person. It indicates a happening, death. If blood is the seat of life, the shedding of blood is the sign of death. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, the Eucharist is the mystery of the body and blood of the Lord, that is, of the life and death of the Lord. This voluntary, he gave himself up for us. And the fathers speak of it, the Greek fathers. They sometimes ask the question, to whom is this offering made? To whom is this offering made? I'm going to read and comment briefly. Back to my, you may have gathered this by the number of uh, times I have mentioned him, to my beloved Gregory the Theologian, Gregory of Nazianzus, who is a patron of mine. He says this in his Easter sermon. He asks the question, To whom and why is this blood poured out for us and shed? The great and most precious blood of God, the high priest and victim. We were in the power of the evil one sold to sin, 
and had brought this harm on ourselves. If the price of ransom is given to none other than him in whose power we are held, then I ask, to whom and for what reason is such a price paid? And then he proposes a couple of possible answers. If it is paid to the evil one, what an insult this is. Because he is using the image that the evil one, the devil, holds us captive. Therefore, is the ransom to release us paid to the devil? St. Gregory says it's an outrage. The thief receives the price of ransom. He not only receives it from God, but even receives God himself. For his tyranny, he receives so large a price. By the envy of the devil, death entered into the world, says the wisdom of Solomon. God created man for immortality, but by the envy of the devil... Death entered the world, but God does not give to someone who owes no payment at all the payment of himself, Gregory says. So it's not made to the devil. Then Gregory asks, if it is made to the Father, then first in what way? Now here we have a theological variation because there are those who would say that the payment is made to the Father. Gregory says none. If to the Father, then first in what way? Were we not in captivity under him? And secondly, for what reason? For what reason was the blood of the only begotten pleasing to the Father, who did not even accept the blood of Isaac when offered by Abraham, his father, but exchanged the, the offering? Gregory says, and St. Basil, Gregory's best friend, says, and the Byzantine liturgy says this. He gave himself as a ransom for us unto death. He gave himself as a ransom for us who were held captive, sold by sin unto death. The offering is made to us, to us, to our condition, to our condition of being chained in death. So Christ's voluntary death and that eternal present of its actualization in the church, how often we use all these constructs there are these many masses or liturgies today. There are these many churches. There are these many altars. We easily forget that all of this multiplicity is an illusion. An illusion. There's only one mass. There's only one altar. There's only one priest. There is only one victim. In the beautiful canon of the Latin mass... There is the prayer asking God to send his angel to convey the offering to the heavenly altar, to the heavenly altar, to the eternally present altar, so that we may receive from that altar the sacred body and blood of the Lord. 
Oftentimes, the question is asked, who is that angel? Well, of course, it's not identified, but the most likely answer is that it comes from the earliest expressions in prayer of theology and theology of the Latin church that still use the expression angel to refer to the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that shouldn't be a shock to us. The angel of great counsel is one of the messianic titles. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Angel of Great Counsel, Father of the World to Come, Prince of Peace. It's not saying that the Son and the Spirit are angels in the sense of created incorporeal spirits, but they are the messengers of the Father. They are the hands of the Father, as St. Irenaeus says. So the angel that is being asked to convey the Eucharistic oblation to the heavenly altar is most likely the Holy Spirit, so that we may receive from the heavenly altar the body and blood of Christ in the eternal present of his voluntary self-oblation for the life of the world. Finally, one last short reflection from my teacher, Alexander Schmemann. And this, I think, brings everything together of what I would like to, in, in this short way, convey in this isness of the words, of the being given and the being poured out. The Last Supper itself, this is from Father Alexander Schmemann's book, The Eucharist. The Last Supper itself took place under the shadow of the darkness of evil. Christ knew the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. And it was precisely from the Last Supper, from its light, that Judas, after taking the morsel, went out into that dreadful night. And soon Christ followed him. Having received the morsel, St. John's Gospel says, we're not told what the morsel was. And the fathers of the church in both East and West are divided about the question, did Judas receive communion at the supper? The answer is we don't know. There is a poem of George Herbert on the Passion that asks the question, Judas... Do you betray me with a kiss? Do you find hell about my lips that are the very gates of life and bliss? From Christ he receives the morsel, whatever that morsel was. And when he received it, says the gospel, Satan entered into him. When he was inches from the Son of God incarnate. And at the moment he received that morsel from the hand of Christ, Satan entered into him. Darkness, darkness. He went out and it was night. And if in the services of Holy Thursday, says Father Schnellman, the day of the express commemoration of the Last Supper, joy is all the time interlaced with sadness, all of us who know the Holy Thursday liturgy, whether from east or west, experience that. 
If the church again and again recalls not only the light but also the darkness overshadowing it, it is because in the double exits of Judas and of Christ from that light into that darkness, she sees and knows the beginning of the cross as the mystery of sin and the mystery of victory over it. The mystery of victory. Christ, who through his self-sacrifice manifested his kingdom and its glory at the Last Supper, this very kingdom appeared in the night of this world. After the Last Supper, Christ also had nowhere greater to go than to this encounter, to the deadly duel with sin and death. You sing on Easter morning in the beautiful sequence of the Easter Mass, Morset vita duelo conflixere mirando. Death and life are locked together in mortal combat. The deadly duel with sin and death, because these two kingdoms the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the prince of this world could not simply coexist because it was in order to destroy the dominion of sin and death, to return his creation stolen from him by the devil, to return his creation stolen from him by the devil. Pretty much my favorite verse of the New Testament comes from the first chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Colossians in which he says give thanks to the Father who has counted us worthy to share the inheritance of the saints in the light he has, this is not the favorite verse that leads up to it he has rescued us from the power of darkness and conveyed us literally it says, conveyed us, carried us away into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And then the verse that I love so dearly, very, very simple, speaking of the creation, says concerning the Son, all was created through him and all was created for him. All was created through him and all was created for him. Uh, this has been a talk on a little word is, and now we have a little word for. What am I? What are you? We are created for the Son of God by the Father. When someone says to us, this is for you, it always refers to giving, the gift. What is my identity? I am a gift by the Father for, for the Son of His love. To save that from being lost to return his creation stolen from him by the devil to himself, to save the world. When he gave himself up for the life of the world, says the Eucharistic prayer of the Byzantine Rite. That God gave his only begotten son. Here we have the words that evangelical Protestants are so fond of quoting. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There are words in the church. God gives, God offers the sacrifice. The Father gives his Son for the life of the world. Thus Christ condemned himself to the cross with the Last Supper, with the manifestation in it of the kingdom of love. Through the cross, the kingdom of God, which was secretly manifested at the Supper, enters 
into the world and through this entrance becomes our struggle and our victory. And that is what is given to us. This is being given. This is being poured out. And always is because it is always in the eternal, voluntary, self-emptying act of the incomprehensible love of the Son of God. All Christian liturgy, East, West, is the actualization of that. And that is why I wanted to present this to you this evening before we start looking at details tomorrow. So that's the talk for tonight. Any questions or additions or that anyone would like to make are most welcome. Are you speechless? <laughs> yes. I've actually never heard of the Syrian fathers before. Um, are their writings some of the ones that used to be weeded out from the canon? Oh, certainly not. No, certainly not. Saint, Saint Ephraim and Aphrates and Saint Isaac of Syria, Kirillonas, these are all saints of the universal church, honored in, honored in the Roman church, honored in the Byzantine church, and their, their writings are very much part of the patristic canon. But uh, we have been, we, we, you know, of, of the Greek and Latin tradition, we we have all become rather provincial in our ways. One of the things that uh, my, my dear Pope Emeritus Benedict has wanted for us is this re-resourcement, as, as it's called, this re-rooting of the church in the scripture and the fathers. And to do this will, will widen us all so immensely. It will not... You know, it will not threaten any of our traditions. It will enrich us all and, and make us all have a deep, deeper understanding of what is our own. So uh, you can find, I'm sure, in the college library many of the works of the Syrian fathers, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. or, or now, these days, you can download hundreds of pages of them even on the Internet. I see, yes. Two, okay, I'll, I'll take the hands in order as I see them. Um, who is the nephew of St. Ephraim again? Kirillonas. C-Y-R-I-L-L-O-N-A-S. we have the uh, uh, advice of many great saints and spiritual writers to seek what is called the sacrament of the present moment, to seek the presence of God now. And, how, and, and I think we have also the, the uh, example of 
in particular, both the saints and the liturgy. Now, uh, it's, it's unlikely that, that many of us here are going to uh, enter into the, the degrees of mystical prayer that someone like St. John of the Cross in the West or St. Gregory Palamas did in the East, but they would both tell us that those degrees of mystical prayer are not for a few special people, but for everybody. Uh, so in, in that, that infused contemplative prayer of the saints, that is the entry into the eternal presence of God, but, 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 the corporate act of contemplation of the church is available for us all in the liturgy. See, if only we would... Now, you'll, you'll... Those, again, those who come to the Byzantine liturgy on Saturday, you'll hear a number of, of sometimes strange-sounding uh, exclamations that are made. Uh, there won't be a deacon, I don't think, so the priest has to do the deacon's parts, but the deacon is continually turning to the people and saying, let us be attentive. Or sometimes uh, he even... Uh, says, the doors, the doors, uh, which is a strange-sounding thing. What, what that meant is after the, the catechumens had to leave, and then, of course, there could be no going in and out of the church during the Eucharistic prayer and communion. So the doorkeepers had to guard the doors to keep people from going out and in and out of the church. Why? Because the kingdom of God in its fullness is being manifest in the one sacrifice of Christ there in the liturgical gathering before the altar. And there is nothing, nothing beyond that for any of us in this life. If, again, we say, uh, how, many, how many times have I, have I celebrated the liturgy and received the Holy Eucharist Again, the answer to that in the end is only once, only once. There's only one communion with the one living Christ. The question is, how deeply do I know? St. Paul says, when all the mirrors are taken away, then I will know, even as I am known. Then I will know, even as I am known. What's he talking about? Even as God knows me, I will, I will know. Well, that is what should be deeper and deeper and deeper in all of us. You have uh, one of the things that I in my way and you in yours, we will, be, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And, and there we will see that to all of us, you here at, a, at this wonderful college where you have uh, just a flood of grace every day to drown in. And uh, the words, to whom much has been given, much has been expected. And I, and I in my way have had the same. And to what extent do I and do you really, really immerse in that? In the Byzantine liturgy we sing, let us lay aside all earthly cares that we may receive the king of all. If we lay aside all earthly cares, we will enter into the eternal presence of God. And we're to seek it in our prayer, in our work, in our life. Uh, there's, a, there's a great story from the Desert Fathers, from Anthony the Great of Egypt. 
who uh, had a temptation one day after all his years in the desert, that he had gotten further along in the, in the ascetic life than anything else and has had whisperings, there is none equal to you, O Anthony. But Anthony, uh, of course, was not deceived by this, and he went wandering. He did wander sometimes into the city, and there in the city of Alexandria he found that there was a doctor, a physician, who took care of, of the sick people without asking payment from them, and uh, and then Anthony, the life of Anthony describes that. And all the day and all the night, this, this good physician sang in his heart, holy, holy, holy. And he is your equal, O Anthony, though he's never spent a day in the desert. So there you go. Yes. That that anecdote is either in the life of Saint Anthony by Saint Athanasius, or in the sayings of the Desert Fathers, the so-called uh, Lausiac history. Okay. I, just, I just read the uh, life of Saint Anthony the other day, and it wasn't in that. Not in there, so it's probably in the sayings of the Desert Fathers. Then. Yes. You mentioned that the uh, most of our hymn tradition comes from Saint Anthony and Syriac Fathers. Yeah. I was wondering, um, in St. Paul, I've often heard reference that multiple doxologies are Aramaic because there's no articles. Yes. And they're often said to have come from early church hymns. I was wondering if there's any relationship between the two or if there's a different form of worship. The, the doxologies, the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, for example, uh, it is hard to say what the psalms are very clear. Hymns may have referred to some of the, some of the other non-psalmodic canticles of the Old Testament, but also could refer to passages that we find in, in both St. Paul's epistles and, and the Gospels and even in the Apocalypse that seem to take the form of hymns. So the beginning of, of hymn singing no doubt can be found in the earliest earliest part of the life of the church. It's just there's no collection of anything. And certainly when we look, uh, for example, you know, uh, there, is, there has been a conservatism over, overall in the liturgy to the singing of non-scriptural uh, texts. Uh, in, the, in the traditional Roman rite, the propers of the Mass, and of course even uh, I noticed in the, uh, at the, the Mass celebrated each day that I have been present at, uh, there is one hymn, but otherwise it's the, the psalm texts that are used. Uh, the introit, and, and, and uh, then, of course, the responsorial song. So the evidence of Christian worship is that there was uh, a kind of conservatism in adding to, to uh, psalm texts, but with the fourth century, that's certainly when the, the flood of newly composed hymns enters. If... If other texts were being sung before that time, there is no real record of what they are or how they were used. There are some, presupp- there are some uh, theories about it, but, but no conclusions. Yes? Um, um, where... Um, sorry. Uh, I'll remember what it was in a second, sorry. Okay, that's all right. We've got time maybe just for one or two more. Yes. 
Um, you mentioned you went to Wadham's Hall. Yeah, I did. That's also where my uncle went. So did you start in the Roman Rite? Yes, as as I, I mentioned yesterday, I I start. I'm, I'm canonically understood in the in in the Catholic Church to be. A, a, a Byzantine Catholic because my mother is a, was a Byzantine Catholic. And therefore, you know, it, it comes through the family. My father was not a Catholic at all at that time until later on in, in my life. So when, when uh, in, in, my, in my boyhood, my parents had moved from central Pennsylvania to upstate New York where there were no Eastern churches of any kind. So my, through my high school years, we, we went to the Latin church. We had, I had an awareness at home of what we were. And then as I grew in my teens, I came to have a deeper realization of it. But I did go to Wadhams Hall Seminary College for my undergraduate work, during which time, in fact, I was very active in, in liturgical matters during, during that period. But that, that was the, the clincher for me, that, that uh, my place was in my uh, in my case, my ancestral tradition, but but my um, my embracing it was not simply uh, 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 by saying an- ancestral tradition. My embracing it was certainly not simply a uh, cultural act. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, you remember. Uh, what, where can you find the parts um, uh, that you refer to that um, the fathers talk about living in the present, living in the presence of the present moment? Well, one of the uh, one of the most popular uh, in, in spiritual in the spiritual uh, tradition of spiritual literature would be the the uh, famous book of Pierre de Cossard, you know, the practice of the presence of God. A little, very little book, very, but a spiritual classic. Yeah. All right, thank you very much, Father. And thank you all for your. Uh, kind attention. Oh, you did that already. So I hope to see you tomorrow. We'll, we'll again, what, what we will do tomorrow will be very different from today. We'll have books with the Byzantine liturgy and look at some things there to prepare us for the celebration on Saturday. <laughs>